All right. Take your, uh, take your Bibles and your note sheet for tonight. Open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament. This beginning a, a series of books running through um, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, covering the history of Israel once they're in the promised land. Uh, Joshua recounts the, the actual movement of Israel into the land. Uh, and then the several books after, the things that happen once they are there, the uh, anointing of, of kings and various wars and other things, ultimately uh, leading to Israel's fall, um, to their captivity and exile in Assyria uh, and in Babylon. Joshua is kind of a transitional book. We've, we've just seen in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses, God calling Moses to lead Israel, uh, beginning in Exodus, out of uh, slavery in Egypt and to the edge of the promised land uh, where Moses dies. He, because of his sin in the wilderness of striking the rock to bring water out of it rather than speaking to it as God had instructed. Moses is unable to go into the promised land. And so at that point, leadership of Israel is transitioned from Moses to Joshua, kind of his right-hand man. And in Joshua, we have uh, the, the recounting, the telling of the people of Israel as they cross the Jordan westward into the land of Canaan. And there, beginning with Jericho and then Ai, uh, begin to conquer all the cities of Canaan and take over the land that God had promised to them. Joshua is a fascinating book with um, a lot of um, battle detail and much um, just exciting and, and interesting events all throughout its pages. It's sort of split in half structurally. The first 12 chapters or so of Joshua are focused upon Israel going into the land and conquering the land. The second or the last 12 chapters, uh, except, for the, except for chapters uh, 22 through 24, uh, are all just details pretty much of the allotment of the land to the various tribes of Israel. And then the final two chapters, we have Joshua sort of parting instructions to the people of Israel. So let's look at some of the particulars of this book uh, as we begin to work our way through it. First of all, its author. Uh, The book of Joshua has for its author, Joshua, son of Nun, who is the successor to Moses as the leader of Israel. Uh, there, there is no internal claim in the book of Joshua to Joshua's authorship. That is to say, nowhere in Joshua is there a line or a sentence that says, Joshua, son of Nun, wrote this book. However, uh, this has been the understanding of, of uh, faithful Jews, even from ancient times, that Joshua was the author of this book. And several times throughout the course of the narrative in Joshua, we find Joshua himself writing things down uh, as the story goes along, as the history goes along. And so it's fair to assume that Joshua was fully capable of authoring this work as well, in the same way that, that none of the first five books um, of the Old Testament explicitly state that Moses is their author. Uh, Traditionally, we have always understood that. And even from ancient times, it was that understanding. Now, the date of the writing of this book was, uh, again, sometime after 1400 or 1200 BC, uh, after the wilderness period, the wandering in the wilderness period had ended. Uh, So that date, 14 or 1200, just kind of depends upon how you date the Exodus, when you date the Exodus. And there are multiple theories for uh, why each one is better uh, uh, 
than the other, and you can look at that at your own time. It's not an issue on which to uh, argue, I don't think. And, and whether the Exodus happened in 1400 B.C. or 1200 B.C. Uh, doesn't change the events, and it just doesn't change the historicity or the truth uh, about, that's communicated about God uh, in those books. If I were to summarize Joshua, just in a few sentences, I would, I would do it this way. Joshua is the history of the people of Israel crossing the Jordan River westward into Canaan, deposing its idolatrous residents, and taking possession of the promised land. As we said before, it's broken into two halves, chapters 1 through 12, tell the major campaigns against the cities of Canaan, chapters 13 through 24, uh, recount the tribal allotments of the land to Israel, and the last three chapters, 22 through 24, are Joshua's farewell message, his final charge to Israel, to worship and obey the Lord in the land that the Lord has given to them. I would note three major themes that, that occur within the course of the book of Joshua. There's a lot of things that happen, but I think three things that are, that are worth giving our attention to. And we'll give our attention to these things tonight. First, the Lord is sovereign over all our dealings. The Lord is sovereign over all our dealings. That is, he is, he is autonomously in control and in authority um, uh, over all things that happen. Secondly, The Lord fulfills his promise of a land, of a home for Israel. The Lord fulfills his promise of a land for Israel. And then third, the Lord fights for his people in order to give them rest. The Lord fights for his people to give them rest. And these three themes are how we will look at uh, Joshua, uh, or the lens through which we'll look at Joshua this evening. As we look at Joshua and the events of Joshua in the scope of redemption history, um, the, the, it's kind of hard to really nail down exactly where it is. But I would do this. You have there on your sheet creation, fall, redemption, consummation, arrows between each of those, those four major uh, uh, sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say bookends, but, um, uh, but major aspects of the gospel. God, uh, gospel story, God creating the world for his glory, creating man in his image, uh, the fall in which Adam and Eve, they eat of the uh, forbidden fruit, and in so doing, they break their relationship with God. We have redemption, which God is working out and pointing to all throughout the Old Testament, but is, uh, finally finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And then we have consummation, which is at the end when Christ returns to call the church to himself, God will make all things right. Uh, Joshua fits kind of in this space in between fall and redemption. So I would maybe just circle or mark just maybe that arrow right there in the middle between fall and redemption. Uh, We see a lot of sinfulness of people uh, in the book of Joshua. We see also uh, the movement toward redemption uh, in God giving them a land. Not that the land in itself is salvific or redeems the people, but it's a picture of the redemption that God is bringing for Israel ultimately in Christ. So Joshua is kind of a book on the way from fall to redemption. Now, as you read Joshua at home, anybody read Joshua in this week to prepare beforehand? Good. Fantastic. Um, were there any things that uh, we could talk about this for a long time. Were there things in Joshua that just made you like shake your head and say, what? What is that all about? Um, my guess is probably so. So it helps to, when we're reading Joshua, to understand the kind of literature it is that we're reading. The genre of Joshua is historical narrative, like Exodus, like Deuteronomy, like Genesis. And like other books of historical narrative, there's very little in the way of instructive material for the church today. Now, there's much instruction for Israel, but for the church directly today, there's not a whole lot that's like one-to-one instruction. 
But there is much in regard to God's character and his dealing with Israel. And so a lot of that is applicable. All of that is applicable to the church even today. And so I find it extremely helpful when studying Joshua to ask yourself questions like this as you go along. First is a question that we've asked of historical narrative in every place that we've looked at it, Old and New Testament so far uh, in this series. What is this text telling me about God and his character? What is this text telling me about God and his character? That's the most important question you can ask of any book in the Bible, by the way. Uh, The book is about God, about who he is, about his son, Jesus, and and what he is like, what he demands uh, of us. And so it's incredibly important to ask uh, of the text, what is this text telling me about God and who he is, what he's like? Secondly, what does this text reveal to me about God's sovereign dealing in my life? What does this text reveal to me about how God is in control of all of the things in my life? Third, what areas of my life are marked by obedience to God? And where do I need repentance? Where in my life, where in my life am I being obedient? Where in my life do I need repentance? We'll see in Joshua times and, and seasons, events of great obedience from Israel, and also uh, uh, events of great sin and, uh, I won't say apostasy, but great sin and disobedience to God. Uh, and the need for repentance is highlighted there. So let's look at Joshua, the text itself. Um, uh, I, I, would, I would title this sermon, The Lord, the Land, and Rest. The Lord, the Land, and Rest. Joshua, this book, picks up where Deuteronomy last left off. The Hebrews are, are perched on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, overlooking the promised land, awaiting God's command to simply go over. They're, just, they're waiting for God to fire that starting, starting pistol for them to head over and take over the land. Moses has died, and Israel is without their chief leader. Joshua will, uh, in quick succession, be called by God in the first verses of this book to lead Israel on this campaign of conquest. And Joshua will do so successfully as Israel will take full occupation and control of the promised land in fairly short order. They do it relatively quickly. It's not uncommon for those uh, who are... um, who are under the persuasion of the prosperity gospel to look at the book of Joshua, that is the health, wealth, and and vitality gospel, to look at Joshua and see in it a wrong-headed assumption that what God wants for believers today is material prosperity and conquest. There are many people who have read Joshua and say, that's what God wants for us today, just to go in and conquer things. There's been no shortage of teachers who encourage their followers to simply march around the Jerichos in your life as though the conquest of Jericho is some sort of prescription for overcoming challenges and sufferings in life. It's not. The conquest of Jericho is not about how to overcome problems in your life. The conquest of Jericho is, is a statement, is an event that, that puts a stake in the ground about who God is, who his people are, and how God fights for his people. And when his people are obedient, God does for them things they cannot do on their own. But this sort of prosperity gospel, man-centered kind of theology is woefully deficient for the very reason that it misses the most important important point of Joshua. And that is namely that the Lord is sovereign. The first of our themes, that the Lord is sovereign. There's no more crucial thing to understand about the book of Joshua than to know that the Lord who called Abraham, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, who defeated the Egyptians and who leads Israel into the promised land is sovereign. He's in control. He rules. He reigns over all of the dealings of man. God's hand, his sovereign hand is all over and through the action and the events of Joshua. And we see that in at least three ways. First, we see that the Lord is sovereign over Israel's leaders. 
He's sovereign over Israel's leaders. From the very first verses of Joshua, we see God's control and superintendence of Israel's life and leadership. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verses uh, 2 and following. Here we, we hear God's uh, call to Joshua. Joshua 1, verse 2 through 9. Moses, my servant, is dead, the Lord says. Now therefore, arise, he's speaking to Joshua, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and... The, uh, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all, uh, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. We sang those words in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, we just sang. Verse 6, be strong and courageous, God says, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you note in these verses how it is God that calls and commands Joshua to his post as leader over Israel? Without question, Joshua is the most qualified and capable to lead Israel. He was Moses' right-hand man. But Joshua neither appoints himself nor is he voted in by popular opinion among the people of Israel. Rather, he's called by God. God speaks directly to Joshua. And there's something here for those of us who, or for those who would seek to lead God's people today, the church. And to be a leader of God's people requires the call of God on one's life to that calling. Now, certainly there are men who are capable and talented to lead and even to teach God's word. As Baptists, we believe that churches should have and practice the authority, the autonomy to call their own pastors. That is a good thing. But no man can assume the pastorate in and of himself. No man can say, I'm pastor of this church. And no church can call a pastor to serve them if God has not first called the man and led the church to do the same. God calls his leaders. Brothers and sisters, let us practice great humility then when it comes to ministry leadership. If uh, young men, young women, older men, older women, if God has placed a call to ministry leadership in your life, follow that call with great humility. Because we know that if God has not called us, we cannot expect or hope to have success in ministry. I hope that in these just first verses, a calling of Joshua. Your eye found its way to verse 5, where God promises to be with Joshua, even as he was with Moses. Did you catch that? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Can you imagine the kind of security and confidence that that must have given Joshua? Knowing what he was up against, knowing what God was calling him to do, to know that God was with him in the same way that God was with Moses. The same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. The same God who met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai in that holy cloud there. That same God who gave them the law uh, through Moses on the tablets of stone would be with Joshua. 
Even with God's presence, the task before Joshua was immense. God was calling him to lead Israel to dispossess the people of Canaan from its idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing residents. And so God says to Joshua three times, be strong and courageous. These are the Hebrew words, hazak and amatz. If you're in the mood to get anything tattooed on your biceps, get hazak and amatz. Not thunder and lightning, get hazak and amatz, right? We had a, our Old Testament professor in seminary made a, a big deal about those two words, hazak and amatz. They just sound particularly manly, don't they? Be strong and courageous. By the way, if you're thinking about getting anything tattooed in Hebrew or in Greek on your body, please come see me first. Make sure it says what you think it says. Look, even with the Lord's sovereign presence, Joshua would need the strength and the courage that only the presence of the Lord could give him. God says, I'll be with you the same I was with Moses, but be strong and courageous, right? Know that I'm going to do this. God is sovereign over Israel's leaders, but he's also sovereign over creation. We've seen this before in in Genesis. We've seen it in Exodus where God demonstrates his might over the universe that he has created. But God does it again in Joshua in at least two places. There are two events in Joshua that stand as great reminders to us of who the Lord is and, and the extent of his reign in the universe. The first is almost a step for step replay of the parting of the Red Sea. Even as God carved a path through the Red Sea for the Hebrews to escape the Egyptians that were pursuing them, so also does God provide a way across the Jordan River into Canaan. In chapter 3, verses 7 and following, we read this. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. Jump to verse 11. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Verse 13, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And then in verse 17, we, we, the priests do this and this is what we read. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Did you catch the two, two or three times that the Lord is mentioned as the Lord of all the earth? Who is Lord? Who is king of all the earth? The Lord, God. He is. And what does he command his people to do? To take the ark, the priests, and to walk into the Jordan. And when they, their feet touch the water, then God will stop the flow of the Jordan for the people to pass through. God is sovereign, but he's also calling his people to exercise faith in his sovereignty. Step in the water first, God says to the people. And in so doing, in their trusting him and knowing what he will do, that uh, they step into it and the waters of the Jordan are stopped so that the people of Israel can cross through. It took engineers some 4.4 million cubic feet of concrete to stem the flow of the Colorado River in Nevada at the Hoover Dam. The Lord stops completely the flow of the Jordan River as his people simply step out in faith that he will do so. This is no feat of of man. This is no feat of engineering that the waters of the Jordan are stopped. This is the work of the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, providing a way for his people. This is 
this is the purpose of God's sovereign. This is uh, the purpose of God's sovereignty over creation to glorify himself in the presence of Israel and among the nations. He says, I'm going to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. He says that to Joshua, but also he's exalting himself as the Lord of all the earth. He says that uh, Joshua himself tells the people uh, uh, later on in Joshua that the Lord has stopped the Jordan so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The Lord is sovereign, and he stops the flow of the Jordan for his glory and for the sake of his name in all the earth. The second such event of God's sovereignty over creation happens in chapter 10. As Israel, is bat- as Israel is battling the Amorites, they've already defeated Jericho, and now they're fighting another city. And there in a plea for help in the midst of battle, Joshua prays to the Lord, asking the Lord to extend the light of day so that they continue to be successful in battle. And so in chapter 10 of Joshua, verses 13 and 14, we read this, or, or, or 12, let's look at 12 through 14. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? This is the book of Jashar, uh, 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 a book external to the canon of the Old Testament, uh, an ancient sort of history book as well. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There had been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Friends, know this, that these verses, this prayer from Joshua to stop the sun is not ultimately for Joshua's glory as though he is one who can control God. Yes, verse 13 says, the sun stopped, or verse 14, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. The subject of the, the, the point of this is not to point out how holy or how great of a leader, how great of a prayer Joshua is. The point of this is to show uh, God's glory and, and that the sovereign God of creation listens to, hears to, and answers the prayers of his people. Know this, God is the subject to the whim of no man. There's nothing that you or I can do in our own will, in our, our own efforts to convince God to do something. There's no better response to God's sovereign hand over, his, over creation and the things that he does in creation than the words of the psalmist in Psalm 89, 5 through 7. We see this God who stops the river Jordan, who stops the sun, in the, the sun and the moon in the sky and extends the light of day so that Israel can defeat their enemies. The psalmist in Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7 says this, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? This is the Lord that is at work for Israel. The sovereign Lord, God of all creation, and the proper response to that is to say, Who is like this God? It's in this event of God, these two events uh, of God uh, stopping the Jordan, of stopping the sun and the moon and the sky to extend light so that Israel can have victory, that we find a third manner of his sovereignty, a third aspect of his sovereignty. And that is that God is sovereign over victory and defeat. Joshua ten fourteen says that the Lord fought for Israel. This concept should serve to give us confidence as well in the church, to know that God fights for his people, that he works on behalf of his people. But it should also be humbling to know that God would lend aid to any man or any person, any group of people at any time. 
God fights on Israel's behalf all throughout the Canaanite conquest, but he does so not for for them primarily, but for himself. He fights for them of his own prerogative and for his own glory, that his name might be known among the nations. Just before Joshua leads uh, leads Israel to attack Jericho, there he's, he's met sort of on the, on the precipice of, of, of going to Jericho where he will, you know, lead the people to march around and blow their horns and the walls come down. You all know the story. Just before he's about to go in to fight the battle of Jericho, he's met by this angelic being with a sword in his hand. And in this private encounter, Joshua says to this man, this is in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. He says to this angel of the Lord, to this, uh, this glorious being that is there before him, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the, being, the, the man says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua asked the plain question of this angelic being with sword in hand. Who are you for? Are you for us or are you for them? Are you for us or for our adversaries? To which the Lord's commander, the commander of the Lord's army says, Neither. I'm for the Lord. I'm not for you. I'm not for your enemies. I'm for the Lord. Know this church. That the Lord is about getting glory for himself first. This is the, the, the Lord seeking his glory is the answer to all of the greatest why questions that we can imagine in this, in this life. Why does God bless that person and not me? Why has God given me success at work or in school? How is it that our church is growing so fast or, or shrinking so slowly? Why should I have to suffer like this? The answer to these and every other why question that we could ask in life is ultimately for God's glory. That's the answer. Why are these things happening? For God's glory. The sovereign Lord who created and sustains all that we see and all that we know does not, will not share his glory or his sovereignty with anyone else. He's God. No one else deserves the glory that he deserves. And for him to share it with another would be for him to abdicate his, his, his role, his, his position as God of the universe. This, God pursuing his glory above all else, is illustrated in Israel's next battle. After they defeat Jericho, an Israelite man named Achan keeps for himself, after the conquest of Jericho, some items from the city that the Lord had commanded to be dedicated to, to destruction. So things like, uh, possibly things like idols or um, uh, other things that were just kind of left behind that might be made of valuable materials, precious materials. God said, you know, devote those things to destruction. But Achan uh, decided, no, I'll just keep a little bit for myself. Who's going to know? But because of Achan's sin, 36 Israelites are killed by the people of Ai. Because of their sin, the next time Israel goes to battle, because Achan has not confessed his sin, he's not open about it, 36 people of their own die in battle. And the Lord then tells Joshua that it's because of the sin and disobedience of Achan that God has allowed them to be defeated. God says there's sin in the camp. I'm not going to let you be victorious as a sinful people, as a people who are, who are entertaining or tolerating sin in your midst. The holy and sovereign Lord will not honor the kind of sinful selfishness that Achan displays. The Lord will neither share nor give up his glory to another. If, if Israel had been successful in their battle against Ai, even with sin in the camp, that would have given, given glory to a, a, a God in such a way that would say that God tolerates that kind of sinful disobedience that is present in the camp. 
The Lord doesn't share his glory. He doesn't give up his glory. He doesn't, he doesn't compromise his glory for anyone. And so as a result, 36 Israelites and ultimately Achan and his family pay with their lives for Achan's sin against the holy and sovereign Lord. God's divine pursuit of his glory and his fame above all else is the final reason for all things. It's the answer to all of our greatest why questions. The Lord fights for Israel in Joshua so that his great name will be known among the peoples of the earth. And the Lord allows Israel to be defeated at Ai so that by their, sin, for, so that by their faithful obedience uh, in purging the sin from the camp, they might be a people that are holy and separate, a nation that are marked by their worship of the only true and faithful God. So when you observe the events of the world around you and in your own life, whether seemingly good or evil, and you ask yourself, what, what is God doing? Why is this happening? What's the point of all the suffering in the world or the difficulty in my life or even the success of that person or in my own life? You can know that the answer to that question in eternity will be that God is glorifying himself. Our selfish hearts, though, often long for a more meaningful answer than this. We want, we, want some, we want a better answer than God is glorifying himself. As though there were any sort of better answer to pursue. What our finite hearts, our sinful hearts, cannot on their own comprehend is that there is no greater purpose or end in anything that God does than to bring himself glory. I would propose a better question to ask of our circumstances then, and that is this. Not to ask, why is this happening, or what's the point of this, or why so much suffering. Instead, ask this question. God, how are you glorifying yourself in my sickness? God, how are you glorifying, myself, glorifying yourself in my defeat, in my success? How does what is happening in the dark corners of the world create in me a greater desire to see your name known in all of the earth? God, help me to see how you're glorifying yourself. Help me to pursue your glory. Help me to understand how the things that I'm going through glorify you. And I would suggest a prayer to you as well. For the hardest of times, for the most confusing of tragedies, for the times of greatest success and victory in life. And it's a prayer, it's a request that Moses himself prayed. Lord, show me your glory. And this God is pleased to do when we humble ourselves to seek first his praise and his fame and his worship. But we should also see that God is not about getting glory for himself at the expense of his people, but rather he's glorified in his faithfulness to his people. And so we see the second of the themes in Joshua that the Lord fulfills his promise of a home for Israel, of a land for Israel. He glorifies himself by giving his people a home. See how God's glory and the good of his people then fit together in this plan, right? In, in his work in, uh, in history. In chapters 13 through 21, those of you who read Joshua earlier this week, my guess is you probably got a little bit bogged down here because you found this long series of formulaic paragraphs that start with something like the allotment for the tribe of so-and-so and end with something like this is the boundary around the people of so-and-so. And in there, you have all this description of where the boundaries for that tribe's land were. And, um, and, and uh, I know you're really excited about finding out what those were. So you flipped right to the back of your Bible to find those cool full-color maps and you marked them out as you read. Awkward laughter. This formula, right? This is the allotment for this tribe. This is the boundary around these 
people. This formula repeats itself for all of the tribes of Israel in these chapters one by one. And so you might read this and find yourself bored with the descriptions of the boundaries of the allotted lands to the tribes of Israel. But I would urge you to read these passages as best you can through the eyes of a Hebrew person, of a citizen of Israel. The Hebrews who would read this history of theirs would see their own families represented in those allotments. There's personal history here for the Hebrew. But far more than personal history, the allotments provide to the Hebrew and even to you, church, a reminder of the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. I would call your attention all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where the Lord calls Abram and says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land, right? The land of Abram's sojourning. And remember that at the end of Genesis, the whole people of Israel, all of Abraham's offspring are only 70 in number and they're living in Egypt, not part of the land of Abraham's uh, sojourning. Recall that in Exodus, the people of Israel have grown and multiplied from 70 to thousands upon thousands, but in a land that belongs to the Egyptians who will ultimately become their slave masters. When you're reading through these tribal allotments, remember how God delivered Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, getting glory over Pharaoh for his own namesake. Remind yourself of the disobedience of that generation of Hebrews in the wilderness, that, that though their generation died off, God was pleased to preserve a new generation that would walk in love and obedience to him. This new generation is the one that is pictured here, told about here in the book of Joshua. And so when you read the allotment portion... These uh, sort of last, this last half of Joshua, you should stand in awe of the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise to Israel hundreds of years later, his promise to Abraham hundreds of years later. Remember all these things as you read Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Let's look at those. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies has withstood them, for the Lord had given all, the, all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. We'll read verse 45 again. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Friends, see in the allotment of lands to Israel, in this, this assignment of a dwelling place, that the Lord's pursuit of his glory comes as he sees to the good provision for his people and as he fulfills his good promises to them. God is pleased and he is glorified in fulfilling his promises to his people. Now, there have been, over the centuries, various understandings of the importance of the land that God gives to Israel here in the Old Testament. Some have placed an undue emphasis upon the, the geographical boundaries itself, upon the land that Israel occupies um, here, uh, here uh, that would bind sort of the faithfulness of God's salvation and sovereignty to this geographical area. That is to say, God only works salvation for the Jews, for the Israelites, as long as they're in this land. I would remind us, though, that before God promised land to his people in the Old Testament, he promised them a savior. Remember, it was in Genesis chapter 3 that God promised the woman a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. The promise of land comes much later in Israel's history and is subsequent and subservient to the promise of a savior. 
We've said before that Jesus himself, he's not important because he comes from God's people, Israel. But we've said that Israel is blessed. Israel is important because through them, God has sent his son, Jesus, to die for the sins of the world. So I would encourage you to know that whether the people of Israel occupy a land, occupy the land of the biblical boundaries in the 21st century and beyond or not, their salvation lies only in whether they have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Whether Israel has boundaries and, and a nation that is called Israel for their own or whether they do not is not important for their salvation. The only way that Israel will be saved is the only way that any man, woman, or child can be saved by placing their faith in Jesus as Lord. And then as the Lord brings his people into this land that he promised to give them, we see finally that the Lord who fights for his people gives his people rest. The Lord gives his people rest. We've already seen that Israel's success in Joshua and even their defeat are due to the sovereign Lord fighting for them or allowing them to be defeated. But the purpose in all of this is to give ultimately his people rest. In Joshua chapter 1 verse 13, Joshua reminds the people of Moses' words about God's purposes. There he says this. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, as the major wars, the major uh, battles of conquest come to a close, we read there, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And then again, just as we saw in chapter 21, verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Even as God rests to reign over his creation on the seventh day, he gives his people rest after war to live in the land that he has given them. Rest is good, but rest, even as it is rejuvenating to our souls and to our bodies, like everything else, is for God's glory and for worship of God. And so in, our, in the rest that Israel has in the new land, they, they, are, they do well to respond in worship to the Lord, worship of the Lord that has brought them into this place. So we who have rest from our spiritual striving, uh, we have rest in Christ from our, our striving against sin and, and death and Satan, we should also respond to the Lord in worship. As you read through Joshua, you're going to find seven different times where the Israelites put together these large stone memorials or or altars. In chapter 4, verse 20, they construct one of these after crossing the Jordan. In chapter 7, verse 26, they construct another one of these stone memorials after, uh, after Achan is punished for his sin. In chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, they erect another memorial after they defeat the nation of Ai, having been defeated by Ai once before. In chapter 8, verses 30 through 32, Joshua engraves the law on some stone tablets uh, that, are, that are, are on some stones that are put together as one of these memorials. In chapter 10, verse 27, uh, they, they erect another memorial uh, after their victory over the Amorites. And then in chapter 22, verse 34, um, the, the tribes that settled in the, on, to, the, to the east of the River Jordan erect a really large stone memorial to serve as a reminder to the tribes that live on the west side of the river that those that live on the east side of the river are still faithful to the Lord. 
Just because we're not living in the, the, the allotted land does not mean we don't serve the Lord. And so they erect this large altar as a memorial in case the western tribes want to wage war against the eastern tribes. So as to say, whoa, 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 just remember, we're, we're all on the same team here. And then in chapter 24, verses 26 through 27, there's a covenant renewal at Shechem. And another uh, one of these altars is, uh, another one of these stone memorials is put into place. I find it interesting that the majority of these uh, stone memorials are erected as reminders of the Lord's victory over the enemies of Israel. They go to battle, they are victorious, they have rest after war, and they build a memorial. And so these memorials serve as physical reminders that incite worship, that, that serve as a catalyst for worship for the people of Israel, worship of the sovereign Lord who has given Israel rest. Rest, though, can be dangerous, can it not? In spite of the various victories in Canaan, we find in chapter 16 and in chapter 18 that Israel does not, in fact, drive out all of the people of Canaan from the land. And even in chapter 16 and 18, we find small pockets of Canaanites who continued to dwell in the land alongside Israel. Their previous victories and present rest had caused the Israelites to delay in being obedient to all that God had called them to do. They're not in a hurry to push everyone out. They're like, ah, we've, we've come this far. This is pretty good. We'll get to that eventually. And this sin of omission, this, this sin of negligence would ultimately lead to the Israelites syncretizing the worship of, of, gods, of false gods like Baal and Moloch among the Israelite people, resulting in their eventual exile from the land. The rest that Israel had in the land is a picture for us of the greater spiritual rest that God purchases for us as we place our trust in Jesus. But this rest is not so that we can stop short of full obedience. Rather, the rest, rest exists as a gift from God that we might be able to be fully obedient to God in all that he has called us to do. Before he dies, Joshua turns and warns Israel about the temptation of complacence and incomplete obedience. Look at Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. There Joshua says to the people, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. To which uh, the people reply then to Joshua in verse 18. They say, uh, the Lord drove out before us all the people, uh, all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God, to which Joshua issues them a warning saying, no, you're not able to serve uh, the Lord for he is a holy God in verse 19. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. It's kind of odd that Joshua would say, choose this day whom you will serve. And the people say, the Lord, the Lord. And he's like, no, 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 really, you can't. What is Joshua saying? Is he telling the people you are physically, spiritually incapable of actually worshiping the Lord that has delivered you? I don't think it's quite like that. I think it's more that Joshua is, he's not declaring their incompetence to serve the Lord or, or their inability to be obedient, but rather he's giving them a very stern warning about pledging to worship God, but defaulting on that pledge. He's saying, don't say you're, you're going to and then not. 
Don't say you will and then don't. In this time of great rest from war, and and after the inheritance of the land that Israel has received, Joshua is warning Israel not to get so comfortable in resting, in being victorious, so as to forget or to forsake the sovereign God who has saved them. And for a time, Israel doesn't forsake the Lord. Chapter 24, verse 31, we read this. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Friends, in the victory that we have over sin and death through faith in Jesus, his death on the cross in his place, his resurrection from the dead, let us then not grow complacent and comfortable But in our rest from striving against sin, knowing that Christ has won the victory for us, let us give ourselves to the work of worshiping and glorifying the God who has saved us, doing so with full obedience, never giving up, never quitting. You may be wondering, where do we find Christ in Joshua? The purpose of going through books like this, bird's eye views, to help us see how every book of the Bible ultimately gets us to Christ or points us to Jesus or helps us to walk uh, uh, in faithfulness and obedience to him. There's at least three ways, I think, that we see Christ uh, in Joshua. uh, Three roads from Joshua to Jesus. First, Jesus is the true Joshua. Jesus is the true Joshua. The most direct connection between Christ and the book of Joshua is the name of the leader of Israel in this book, Joshua. It's a name that means the Lord is salvation. In the book of Joshua, we have seen how the Lord sovereignly orchestrates and fights for the people of Israel to bring them into the land. The Hebrew name, Yeshua, has been anglicized to Joshua. But the Greeks Hellenized the, Greek, the Hebrew name Yeshua to Jesus. Contemporarily, we have anglicized Jesus to Jesus. You see that? Jesus' name is actually Joshua. It's the same name. Jesus' name means the Lord is salvation. Now, while Jesus, Yeshua, was a very common name for boys in the first century, you can imagine why. The people of Israel are, are living under Roman rule. They're, they don't really have a land or a government of themselves. They're looking for a Messiah to come. You, it, it, when when the, the tenor of a people is, is one of expectation of God to save them, it, it would not be then uncommon for many of them to name their male children, the Lord is salvation. But in Jesus, this name, the Lord is salvation, Yeshua, it takes on an incredibly deeper meaning when we see that Jesus is not just a boy who's given a name with a a hope for the future, but that he himself is the Messiah. He's the son of God who is himself the very object and purchaser of our salvation. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is salvation from the sin that we all commit and from the death that our sin warrants. Jesus is our salvation because he's taken the punishment that is due for our sin in our place. And as we trust in him and repent of our sins, Jesus, the Lord, is salvation for us. Secondly, Jesus has interceded for us to give us spiritual rest. Jesus has fought the battle against sin and death in our place so that we can have rest. The greatest battles that we fight in this life, friends, are not battles of the body. They're not battles of flesh and bone, battles of politics and economics. The greatest battles that we fight are are battles of the soul, battles for our soul. Sin, 
the, the intentional disobedience that we commit against a holy God weighs heavy on our souls because it's divorced us from God, who is our loving creator. The brokenness of a sinful world is spiritually exhausting. And in ourselves, we have no way to fix it. Our souls long for rest. Our souls long to, to breathe, to, to have some respite from this war against the sin that our own hearts uh, wages against us. God, in Joshua, is faithful to give the Israelites rest in Canaan after battle. He fights for them and he gives them rest. And he does so as a type, as a shadow, a prefiguring of the greater rest that we need. Rest from striving and battling sin. Jesus, who is the sinless Son of God, calls to embattled sinners in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. This is there uh, in your note guide. He says, Jesus says to, to those who are weak and weary and heavy laden by their sin, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, if your soul is weak and burdened by your sin tonight, run to Jesus for rest. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own abilities. Yourself, your abilities have have only caused you to continue in the cycle of, of brokenness and sin and running away from God. Break the cycle by turning to God. Run from yourself. Run from your sin. Run to Jesus and there find rest for your soul. Uh huh. So you just read that in Joshua that he wanted uh, everybody on the same page. Mm-hmm. And anybody who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believes that mm-hmm. he was um, killed on the cross and that he rose from the dead, mm-hmm. yes. the Word of God says you are saved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There is there is unity amongst all Christians in our profession that 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 Jesus is Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Um, getting to the the third uh, aspect of discovering Christ in Joshua, we see this: that Jesus is Lord of all peoples and all lands. Much of Joshua is focused on the people of Israel and the land that they will take over. But we see that Jesus himself is Lord of all peoples. He is Savior to all peoples. And he is Lord of all lands. There is not any part of this creation that is not under his control. It is sometimes easy for us to see the favor that God has on Israel in Joshua. And to assume that Israel today deserves some sort of special treatment as God's chosen people. But we also do well to remember that God deals favorably with all those who place their trust in him. Recall from Joshua chapter 2, the Jerichoite prostitute Rahab, who when spies come into Jericho, she hides them uh, in, in her house. She declares to them her fear of the Lord. And in, in, as a result of, of uh, having faith in God and, and being on right, God's side as he is working among the Israelite people, she and her family are spared from destruction and ultimately uh, not just spared but folded into the people of Israel. This Canaanite, Jerichoite prostitute is now a member of the people of God. In fact, 
Rahab is one of only three women who are mentioned by name as one of Jesus' ancestors in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. This woman was very far from God, both ethnically and morally. She was not part of God's chosen people, and she was a prostitute. But her faith brings her near to God and makes her a part of the people of God. So in the opposite way, we find people like Achan, a person who is of Israel, an Israelite man who's part of God's chosen people, who is judged severely for his lack of faith and his disobedience to God. And in situations like this, we ought to be reminded, particularly of Achan, by Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, when Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Listen, we certainly pray for the salvation of Jews today. We pray for the salvation of Jewish people who do not know Jesus as Messiah. But we do so knowing that there's only one way of salvation. Not by living in a particular land, not by worshiping in a particular place, nor by being born of a certain person, but only through trust in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is to be marked in our hearts as a true member of the family of of God. Faith in Jesus is the circumcision of the heart that Paul speaks of. Achan was a member of the family of Israel, but he wasn't a member of true Israel because his sin, his disobedience, showed that, that, that he was not circumcised in heart. And on the other side, you have this woman, Rahab, far from the people of God, far from God himself who by her faith in him is grafted in, is folded into the people. Why? Because her heart is circumcised. Her heart is given over in faith to God. Likewise, human leaders and human governments are too weak to save. Even they are subject to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, because Jesus is Lord of all peoples and all lands. And if your heart is not lorded over by Jesus, you are not a part of his kingdom. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, not just believed in the the historical facts of his death and resurrection, but trusted your life on on the person of Jesus, you don't know him. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. Don't leave here tonight without trusting Jesus that way. There's a really interesting uh, place in Joshua where we see that... um, after the, the people have uh, uh, conquered Jericho, they, they begin practicing the, uh, uh, the, the covenant signs of uh, circumcision and Passover again. They, they, they uh, mark themselves by the, pra- by the practice of these two things that God has commanded of Israel. In the New Testament, there are two new uh, ordinances that are given to the people of God for worship. Not circumcision and the Passover, but, but a, uh, a reminder of the circumcision of our heart, which is baptism, and uh, a, a similar memorial-type meal that reminds us of what God has done in saving us from destruction, which is the Lord's Supper. We have opportunity tonight to practice one of those ordinances together as a family of faith, as a body of believers. We take the Lord's Supper together. We eat this piece of bread that symbolizes Christ's